my plan was, as I put in the email to y'all on Thursday, my plan was to finish up looking uh, at Jesus at Sukkot at, at, in John 8, and there's some tremendous stuff that I'm really excited to share. However, a unique opportunity unfolded last night. At dinner last night before the library lecture, I had a chance to see uh, my, my good friend who had flown in from England just yesterday and will be preaching tonight but was planning on resting up this morning from jet lag. I said, come on, come up to class and let me interview you. So I have here Dr. Michael Lloyd. Would you join me in welcoming him? Come on up. I'm going to put you right over there. Thank you. So Michael is um, uh, over here fresh from Oxford. Uh, not very fresh, given the jet lag. But, uh. <laughs> okay, not so fresh from Oxford. And, and he is an amazing person on multiple levels. And we're missing out if we don't take time to interview him a little bit. I will tell you, he's coming to the library to lecture in March of 2020. God willing. And so we'll get more of him then. But for right now, I really wanted to have a chance for you to get to know him. So here we go. Um, um, Michael, please tell them a little bit about who you are as a person before we get into anything about scholarship and things like that. Okay. So um, I, who am I as a person? I was brought up in a, in a Christian family from about the age of five, I guess. My parents had been occasional churchgoers and uh, kind of social Christians, and then my brother had uh, a brain tumor and had to have an operation, and my mum kind of coped while she had to, and uh, you know, through the operation, that sort of thing, then had a bit of a collapse, and um, somebody recommended that she went uh, to a Christian nursing home, a place where they have medical care, but also prayer, um, and that's where she and my dad discovered a personal faith. And uh, so from the age of five, I was brought up in a Christian family. Um, personally, what else? Uh, I love music. I love literature. I love walking. And I have um, a particular love for all forms of drama, including puppetry. Um, I want in my retirement project is to write plays for the puppet theater. Um, I've no idea whether I'll be able to, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that my interest in puppetry <laughs> is not reflected in my leadership style. Um, How good's our camera? <laughs> Michael likes puppetry. Oh, he does, does he? Hello. Come on, can we not zoom in on this? This is too good now. I, I, I love puppetry. I'm not so keen on ventriloquism. <laughs> okay, 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 there. Hello, Michael. <laughs> How are you? So, all right, we won't do that too much. <laughs> Why? Because. Uh, so, what part of England did you grow up in? So I grew up, well, insofar as I grew up, it was in the south, um, in, in right on the coast. Um, and, and, and are we allowed to ask how old you are? You are allowed to ask how old I am. I was born at a very young age. Okay. How, <laughs> that's probably safer. Let's don't ask your age. Let's just ask when you were born. I was born in 1957. 1957. Well, that's a young man. Indeed. And, um, um, okay, you grow up, you've got a brother. Did I've your got, brother survive the brain tumor? He did. Uh, yes, he, he did. Um, he had health challenges through his life, but, uh, but he survived through to his 50s and then, and then died. Okay. Yeah. Um, did I have, you have two, two other brothers as well. That's what I was going to say. Any other siblings? Uh, yes, I was the last despairing attempt at a daughter. Um, <laughs> they, they gave up when I came along. Well, I think they gave up before I came along, but I came along anyway. Uh, um, so so as, uh, we've got five children, and our youngest says um, that we just kept trying until we finally got it right. <laughs> so you, you can also hinge it on that. My parents got, got it right quicker than yours. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, must have been. <laughs> so, um, uh, so you grow up, when did you, the, the British school system is so different than ours. Yes. So that y'all decide early on who's going to university and who's not. How, tell, tell, walk us through, what kind of kid were you in high school? 
Um, I, what can I, uh, the usual kind, same kind of show off I am now, I think, probably. Yeah. Um, I loved literature, I loved books, I loved reading. Uh, I was, I was you kind were a of, nerd? I was a nerd, yes, okay. yes, and never quite grown out of that. Yeah, but you did, uh, you, you, so uh, he told me that he has finally, at this point in his life, watched his first Star Wars movie. That is true. And he's like really into Star Wars now. Well, the first two anyway. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty good. So, so you liked uh, literature, you liked that stuff, and did you always know you would go to university? What did your parents do when you were growing up? Uh, my dad was a, an army officer and then was invalided out during the war and became a farmer. At the end of the war, became a farmer. Uh, my mum was a full-time mum. But uh, yeah, I kind of always knew I would go to university, I think. And um, where did you go to school? I went to Cambridge. Cambridge? Yes. Huh. Yeah. Did you even apply to Texas Tech? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I wasn't, uh, my ambitions weren't that high. That's okay. That's, that's very, very, so you just went straight to your safety school. I, well, okay. Not, a, um, not only was it safety school, but actually Downing College, which was the one I was at, uh, was founded by my ancestor, Sir George Downing, and I just threatened to reopen the lawsuit if they didn't let me in. So, so you got interest. So y'all can trace your heritage back real far and stuff. Yeah. Huh? Are and you related to the Queen at all? Uh, indirectly, because we I can actually trace my ancestry back to King Alfred. Can you uh, really? In, in the ninth century. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. Does that get you discounts, places, and stuff? <laughs> Not enough, no. <laughs> um, do you all have like a, one tremendous family reunion each year? <laughs> um, uh, okay, so you go to school. Are you a faithful believer when you go off to university? Uh, yes, I, I grew up in, in the faith that my parents had, their kind of newfound faith, and um, I was excited about that. I got involved in a school Christian union and uh, grew in that, got excited about that. Um, used to go to camps and... And, and what did you get your degree in? It was in English literature. Okay. Um, and, and, oh, <laughs> Laurie. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, English literature. And, uh, and, and I did like half your relatives write half of English literature? I mean, it's just, no. Sadly not. Oh, no, the, the, the nearest link was my great-great-grandfather was a, a newspaper baron, made a lot of money, sadly since dissipated. Um, and he used to publish Dickens's novels under slightly different names. So Nicholas Nickleberry and th things like that. Dickens sued him and lost. I'm sorry to say, that's like illegal. Yeah, it is, it, it, well, it wasn't then because Dickens sued him and lost and they had to change the copyright laws. Uh, Hence the reason Dickens needed a better lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Just saying. If only you'd been available. Um, so... Uh, um, <laughs> So your grand, great grandfather, great 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 grandfather stole Dickens' works. Yes, and then uh, you get a degree in uh, uh, British Lit. And what did you do after that academically? Academically, and no, nothing to start with. Um, I went off, and well, I was thinking about. Uh, obviously, as a Christian, I was wondering where my gifts gifts would be best used, and I gradually thought that in in the kind of pastoral ministry, uh, and. I went to the church, and the church said, oh, go away and broaden your horizons of life. So I went actually to Newfoundland in Canada for a year and a half and uh, worked in a hospital there as a volunteer um, and then came back and uh, did my theological training in, in Durham. In Durham? Yeah, in the north of England. And, and what area, uh, I know this, but they want to hear, what was your dissertation, what is your academic niche where you, you, you dwell? Okay, well, this came a little bit later when I then did my doctorate in Oxford, but uh, my particular area of interest is evil, which is why I'm particularly pleased to meet you all this morning. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, only, if only for research purposes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but no, the whole, the whole problem of evil, why would a good God allow earthquakes and diseases? That old question. I kind of... And I, I did it because I thought there's a hole in my argument. I, I used the free will argument for moral evil, for nasty things people do to each other. I think that makes sense. Unless we're free, um, then our choices are meaningless. We, you can't love if you're not free to withhold love. Moral goodness is not moral goodness unless you're free not to be good, to do, to do uh, bad things. But it doesn't seem to answer the question of what about 
those things that are not caused by human beings. Okay, so here's what I want to do before you go too far, because yep. you know this and you're saying things uh, that, that are easy for you. Um, I want to pause and make sure that we're understanding precisely what you're saying. So in the world of the problem of evil, yes. you've kind of said, let's look at two different problem areas. Let's first consider the problem area of why people do evil things to other people. Yep. Why does Hitler do what he does? Or why does the eighth grade girl gossip and be mean to the other eighth grade girls? Yep. Whatever, whatever, anywhere on that spectrum. Yes. Okay. And you said you had a, a, an answer that you were at peace with on that. Explain your answer on that. And then we'll go okay. to where your answer doesn't work. Um, it, it seems to me that if human beings, God made them free, because otherwise love is meaningless. If we are pre-programmed <coughs> to love God, then fine. But, but what does, that doesn't mean anything. We are, we are robots, and God is not actually loved, because it's him who's done it in the first place. Only if we are free to choose whether we love him or not, whether we obey him or not, is that in any way meaningful. Only if we are free to love or withhold our love to one another is that love meaningful. If, I were, if you hypnotize me uh, and said you will love me, I'm not sure that you'd be satisfied with the love that you received because you knew, know it was a sham. Only if we are free not to do those things, not to love, um, is the love itself freely chosen and meaningful. Okay, um, so that makes sense for why there's evil in the way people treat people. Yeah. But you said that that argument does not satisfy or did not satisfy you for why there is evil apart from that. So when the hurricane blows through yes. and, and ravishes uh, uh, families and destroys livelihoods and homes and, and kills people and all of that. Yes. That type of situation? That type of situation and disease and famine and all the rest of it. Uh, things that are not obviously caused by human uh, intervention or choice. Okay, so now you said this is ultimately a problem you worked on during your doctoral work and that was at Oxford That's right. after getting your master's at Durham. Uh, it, was another, it was another bachelor's, but yeah. Okay, after enough. getting a degree in Durham, yeah, you then went to Oxford and that's where you completed your degreed education, is that right? Yes. Which college at Oxford? Um, I was at Worcester College. Okay. Where N.T. Wright was the chaplain at the time. Okay. He'd actually been my chaplain in uh, Downing College as well in, in Cambridge, so I've been kind of, you know, pestering him for 45 years now. Yeah, you and Tom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, and Tom, by the way, will be back um, with us uh, in this class as well as speaking at the library in June of 2020 is the plan. Mm -hmm. um, all right, so uh, you, you go to Oxford, you get your doctoral work done in this area. Did you, did you solve it? Did you come up <laughs> with some answers that satisfied you? Let me, let me take a run at that. Okay. Um, I, I was just really uneasy with the answers that people were trying to peddle. Uh, in particular, the, the suffering is good for you line. Uh, that God, you know, the moral evil is, is dealt with by uh, the free will argument, but the natural evil, the nasty things that happen regardless of human intervention, they are to deepen us. They are to enable us to show courage. Without can't throw, show courage unless you have threat. Uh, they enable us to build up compassion. You can't have compassion unless people are suffering. These are good things, and therefore, uh, it is good for us to suffer in these ways because we can rise above it, we can uh, respond to it courageously and nobly, and, and they, it deepens our character. I don't buy that. And the reason I don't buy that is because of Jesus. When he, whenever you see Jesus and suffering together, you see him attacking suffering. You never hear somebody come to him asking him to heal them and him saying, no, I'm going to leave you as you are because you're better off that way. It's good for you. Or if he did, it was never reported. Okay. Um, it, I don't think we have the right as Christian theologians to build a view of suffering 
that seems to be directly opposed to that which Jesus seems to have embodied himself. Uh, he is our window on God. If he is attacking suffering, that must be what God is doing. So God's attitude to suffering is hostile. That's why he didn't want it in the first place, warned us against the sin that would cause suffering, and is ultimately going to eradicate it in the long term. Uh, so we need to explain, therefore, why it exists if God doesn't want it. Um, and <clears throat> I think you can't do that without taking into account other agents than human beings. Mm. So other agents than human beings. Are you saying that there's more in existence than God in his fullness and humanity? Yes. Okay, now when Janet Seifert says that, she's talking about flying saucers and UFOs. But when you say that, um, I suspect you're talking about something other than that. That is correct. I'm, I'm not big into flying saucers uh, and UFOs. Um, now, I'm talking about the angelic and demonic realm. The angelic and demonic realm. Tell us why that enters into the picture and, and, and how that informs you. So if God doesn't like suffering, then, the people who, then it must be creatures who brought that about, not the Creator. That's the standard thing, and therefore it must happen in time because creatures are creatures of space and time. Uh, so at some point, something must have happened. Now, the fall of Adam and Eve is a really significant point in that, but it's not the beginning of the problem. Uh, it's not the beginning of the problem because, for one thing, there's the serpent who, even before human beings rebel, is actively working against the purposes of God and trying to get people Sowing to disobey sedition. him. sedition, yes. yes. And however you interpret the serpent, here is a bit of the created world that is actively working against the purposes of the Creator before human beings rebel. And secondly, uh, we are told that... Um, you know, God tells human beings to fill the earth and subdue it before they fall. They're told to subdue it, to put it right. There's something there that needs to be subdued. There's something there already, even before they fall, that needs to be put right and which they are called upon to put right. Uh, so it looks to me as if there's been a prior fall to that of the human fall. Uh, and what I simply do is draw on the Jewish Christian tradition of the fall of the angels prior to that of the fall of human beings. And all I've added to that Jewish tradition and Christian tradition is the idea that what happened in that spiritual dimension, that angelic realm, could have impacted upon the way that the whole physical universe developed and evolved, luring it away from God's original harmonious purposes for creation. Um, so that's... that's the kind of theory. It's so interconnected at these. It's, 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 I don't think this is a surprising idea. We know increasingly how interconnected our world is, how a butterfly beating its wings in Madagascar could cause a hurricane in Hawaii. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that what happens in the spiritual world can impact on the physical world. We know that from prayer. We wouldn't pray, pray if that wasn't the case. If what happens in the spiritual realm doesn't impact upon the physical realm, we wouldn't pray for somebody's healing or anything like that. Um, so I'm suggesting that the fall of the angels uh, distorted the whole way in which creation developed, it, developed, luring it away from God's original harmonious purposes. And that human beings were called to put it right. And if you want to see what it would have looked like for human beings to put that right, you look at the person of Jesus. Here is a human being finally doing what human beings were always intended to do, namely subduing the earth stilling the storms, taking the threat out of creation, healing the sick, raising the dead, undoing all the things that went wrong with the angelic fall. Now, do you find that interesting? Yes. And the re yeah. The reason I ask you that is because you just got a five-minute preview of his 50-minute lecture he will be giving at the library. 
in uh, March. And that, that will right? be a 50-minute version of my 500-page forthcoming book, available from all good booksellers. <laughs> <laughs> when is the book due out? Well, don't hold your breath. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to get into more substance with you, but I want to fold back for a moment into more of your private life. You are, what, tell everybody what your job is right now. What do you do for a living? I am uh, what we call the principal, or what you'd call the dean or president, I guess, of uh, an outfit called Wycliffe Hall, which is a, an evangelical Christian theological college that's part of the University of Oxford. So Oxford University is divided up, in a sense, into a number of different colleges. That's right. And one of those colleges is called Wycliffe Hall, sort of? N nearly right, yeah. We are actually what's known as a permanent private hall of the university rather than a college, but effectively, they're, they're similar. In, in our yeah. language, you'd be a college. We, in your language, we'd I be mean, college. you've got a, a certain measure of independence, but you are part of the Oxford yeah. University structure. That's right. So um, our son, uh, uh, undergrad, had a, a, a spent time at Pembroke. Yes. Um, and then his master's in DPhil were from University College. Those are at Oxford. Those are just different colleges, but his degrees from Oxford. Yes. That's so right. if, if I were studying at Wycliffe, yes. my degree would be from Oxford. Yes. But it would be the, the hall where I studied would be Wycliffe. Yeah, and that's where you'd get most of the teaching. Okay. You have the lectures in the university, but, but you'd and, be the And teaching. you're like the head guy. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's worrying, isn't it? But it is true. <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, um, so, so if people wanted to get into Wycliffe Hall, I mean, obviously there's criteria, but you're like the guy, aren't you? That <laughs> <laughs> makes, makes me sound like I'm open to, you know, use notes I, I in, a, in a brown that. paper envelope. I did envelope. not say that. I did not say that. <laughs> How much um, it take? No, I'm... <laughs> Um, um, do you, so how many students are at Wycliffe Hall? We have about 140 at the moment. 140. And what types, what are they studying? What, if, if I were going to go to Wycliffe Hall yes. and you were to take this, this uh, profligate lawyer in, yes. um, what fields of study could I pursue? Uh, either theology or theology and philosophy. So we're fading. You know, that's Narrow. what we do. That's what we that's what we and explain to everybody the the difference so in our university system uh, you you go in you know my undergraduate degree is in is in biblical languages yes. okay so i would have to have x number of hours of greek x number of hours of hebrew uh, uh, some other languages uh, uh, i could take as supplemental languages x number of hours of Bible, X number of hours of blah, blah, blah. And I'd sign up for these courses and I'd take the courses. And most of them would have a number of students in the class, not all of them, but, but that's the way we did it. it. Very different for you guys, right? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> basically, we do everything by exam. All the Oxford courses, are, nearly all the Oxford courses are done by exam at the end of your time. So you don't really have to show up for anything if you don't want to as long as you pass the exam at the end. Um, but people do, and we do encourage them to. Yeah, do, do, are there typical classes, or do you have a tutorial system, or how do you do that? Uh, so we have a mixture of, of lectures, um, which is put, are put on by the theology faculty, and then one-to-one -one tutorials. And you'll write an essay, and you'll go to your tutor, and you'll read your essay, and they'll talk about the themes raised by it, and then they'll give you an, another essay for, for next week. So, uh, and most of them will be doing one and a half or two essays per week. And these essays are not 75 words on how I feel today. Not generally speaking, no. No, no. They're, they're research papers they are is research, what we would call they are, them. They are research papers. So you've got a system <coughs> where every one of the students is assigned one or more tutors. Yeah, well, one tutor per subject, probably. So okay. a New Testament tutor, an Old Testament tutor, a doctrine tutor. And would meet individually with that tutor, yeah. and the tutor will say, okay, we'll meet next Monday at 6 o'clock, but by Friday I want a paper on this and this emailed to me. And then when you meet that tutor on Monday, you go over the essay, and then the 
tutor challenges you and then sends yes. you to do another one. That's absolutely right. My, my predecessor but one was Alistair McGrath, who I think has been here uh, yes. as, as well. And he was famous for, uh, you, you, when you knocked on the door, he would be writing a book. Uh, and <laughs> when you'd sat down, he'd summon, say, your essay, and you'd read your essay. And then, um, and sometimes he got you to email it in advance, and somebody wrote in their essay, Banana, 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 are you listening, Alistair? <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't comment on it. <laughs> oh, wow, I thought he might find that appealing. <coughs> um, oh. <sighs> anyway, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of banana jokes. I, um, I fear there might be. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, uh, do you teach as part of your responsibilities, or are you mostly administrative? No, I, I, I do as much teaching as I can and as the students can take, yeah. Okay, and, and um, uh, give us an idea of, of what, I mean, how many students do you, do you tutor? Do you lecture? What do you I, I, I don't do much tutoring, um, unless they're in, particularly in the problem of evil area, in which case I do, uh, but I, I do some lecturing, yeah. Okay, so uh, what, what was your last lecture? My last lecture was on the resurrection. For it or against it? Uh, I was, well obviously you have to weigh up all sides, but I was for it. <laughs> um, uh, so when you give an Oxford lecture on the resurrection, yeah. what, what, you've got these students, what do you do? I mean, what did you say? Give us a, a Reader's Digest condensed version. Okay, so I was trying to show how the doctrine of the resurrection fits with everything else we believe. So doctrine of creation, it fits into the doctrine of creation because it's a way of saying our physicality really matters. This is not something that God made a mistake with and he's actually only interested in our souls. No, the very fact that he raised the physical body of Jesus shows that he's committed to, likes, loves, and is going to uh, recreate the world physically. It's not just taking us off from this nasty physical world to a spiritual dimension, spiritual plane. He's going to remake the heavens and the earth and give us re-embodied bodies within that transformed and, transformed and transfigured universe. Um, doctrine of the fall. If it takes something like that to put right the world that's gone wrong, it shows how wrong the world has gone, how death and things are not part of God's plan or intention. Uh, doctrine of providence, it, it shows how um, anti-death God is. The resurrection shows what it, it, God is like when he's acting. This is the sort of thing he does. And so often pastorally, we suggest otherwise. We say when somebody dies and somebody's grieving, we say, well, I'm sure God has his purposes. Yes, he does, but this isn't one of them. He doesn't want death. That's why he said, keep I am saying. the resurrection and the life. And choose life. And choose the things that make for life. He's not in the business. He never says, let there be death. Uh, and so just going through the whole spectrum of, of uh, and then the sacraments. The sacraments are physical things that God uses to feed us and nourish us in our deep places. Uh, because he loves physical things. And, and that you see that in the resurrection. You see that in creation. You see that in the incarnation, where he becomes physical. Uh, you see that in uh, the ascension, where he's raised physically. Uh, God loves the body. Wow. Um, um, okay, so you, do you assign other lecturers as well? Or is there a faculty body that makes that decision? Uh, we, we appoint our own team. And um, I, I'm, I guess, responsible for that, uh, ultimately. Yeah, the buck stops with me. And, but actually, I, I think our team's pretty good. Um, um, and you have been, I'm trying to remember, I remember when you took the job. Mm. Um, uh, uh, it's, been a, it's been a while now. It's uh, been, it's been six, six, years? six years, and they haven't rumbled me yet. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. They're very undiscerning. I do like that in a colleague. <laughs> well, so you, but you've accomplished a major coup. Uh, you, you've got something that you have done that a lot of people are probably uh, wholly jealous and envious <laughs> of. Um, why don't you tell them um, what, who you have brought to the school? Oh, I thought you were talking about my marriage. I'm sorry. No. Uh, <laughs> 
No, you've already blown that. I said, tell us about yourself, and you never even mentioned her. Um, I never so, got onto that. Yeah, okay. We'll come back to that because that's very important. Um, uh, no, tell, tell everybody who has landed at uh, Wycliffe Hall of uh, late. Well, we've, N.T. Wright is, has just retired to Wycliffe uh, as our senior research fellow. Uh, he's been up in Scotland, and um, uh, as I say, he's been, he's been a friend for about f f over 40 years. And uh, he, he said to me a couple of years ago, he said, um, Michael, my wife Maggie wants to go and live on the Isle of Harris, which is way a remote island in the north of Scotland, off the north of Scotland. Um, and our children all live in the south of England. How's that going to work? I said, well, the way that's going to work, Tom, is you're going to come and live in Oxford, and we'll give you a house, and uh, you can do some teaching for us, and then in the vacations, you can go to the Isle of Harris. And he said, yeah, that could work. Um, and, so and then that, I had to find a house. And, yeah, and, and funding. <laughs> and funding, Because yes. this isn't cheap. This is not, this is not cheap. Yeah, yeah. No, so in that regard, you have uh, Tom Wright there, um, and, and during the vacations, he can go to this island north of Scotland. Explain to them, because I could never quite get a grasp on this, even though Will was in school there for, if you add up everything, 10 years or so. I could never, it seems to me y'all aren't ever really in school. I mean, <laughs> when do you have school? What are the terms? Uh, we have, in Oxford, you have three eight-week terms. Uh, so actually, it's under half the year that you're there. But they are pretty intense. As I say, you're doing a couple of essays a week or... or assignments a week. So you go to school for eight weeks, and then you have off for... Well, we call them, we don't call them holidays, we call them vacations, which means that we expect people to work during them. We don't expect them just to hive off to some Texan beach somewhere. <laughs> well, isn't that quaint? <laughs> ah. um, so, all right, now, I'm, I'm in this regard... And we'll get to substance in a moment, but we're doing good time-wise, so I've got a time for a little bit of extra information. I want to tell you something I was told, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Or consult my lawyers. Yes. <laughs> so here is what I was told. I was told that in America, our schools have every spring a week that we call spring break. And our students live for it. The faculty probably live for it. Everybody's excited about it. Where our spring break got its start was actually in Oxford, way back in the Middle Ages, when Oxford was already the intellectual seat for England, mm -hmm. um, the plague would break out during the spring. And the king of England and his counselors lived in fear that the plague might hit Oxford and destroy the intellectual capital of England in one fell swoop. Hmm. And so in the spring, for six weeks or something, he would order that all of the faculty disperse to all parts of the island and everybody just leave Oxford for six weeks in the spring and from that, y'all still have this extended spring break. And, uh, but even the American school systems, when we started up in, the, in New England, um, carried forward this idea of a break during springtime long after the, the plague has been wiped out. Well, I, I didn't know that. Um, and it's an interesting policy because you'd have thought that they would go to all the different parts of the country, pick up the plague and bring it back to Oxford. Um, but uh, that's why we exported it to you and we don't do it ourselves anymore. Yeah. So um, um, you, you got to check into that because I'm going to ask you about it in March. Okay, and I, I don't want to hear, well, I've never heard that before <laughs> because you've clearly now heard it and you can determine if it's true or not. I will take my homework seriously. All right. Tell us about your wife and your family. Uh, so I um, went for a long time uh, as a bachelor until I was um, 50 years old. Uh, and then I met a, a lawyer um, and, uh, called Abigail. And uh, we got married. And so we've been married now for 12 years. Just about 12 years. That's yeah, right. Yes. Yeah. We don't have any children. I have 150 students instead. Um, I, I was speaking to some of our students recently and saying the old thing about you know, how you need to uh, treat your children well because they'll choose your care home. 
Um, and I, I said, of course, I speak to somebody who don't, doesn't have any children. I have 150 students, and I wouldn't want them looking after me in my old age. And one of them said, I thought that's what we were doing. <laughs> Shame she never got her degree, though. <laughs> yeah, that cost her, didn't it? <laughs> um, um, okay, so what's your favorite food? My favorite food, um, I, I love all, nearly all forms of food. Um, I'm probably Italian. Wait. Sorry, that's the wrong answer. Yeah, probably, yeah. what's the right answer? Tex-Mex. I was coming to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, do, you, do you eat Tex-Mex food? I, when I come to Texas, I do. Yeah, and it's pretty good, isn't it? It is fantastic. Yeah, that's right. And so that was the right answer I was groping for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Italian food is like Tex-Mex wannabe. <laughs> um, I mean, it's good if you can't get good yeah, Tex-Mex, yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know they don't really have chips and salsa. Uh, you know their no. cheese is just on like grated on top of the food instead of melted into cheese dip. But it's okay. <laughs> and um, um, so, how often do you come to the U.S.? A couple of times a year, usually. Because yeah. we, we see you a decent bit. By which he means far too often. Uh, no, 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 not enough, not <laughs> enough. We see you a decent bit. Yep. Houston is one of the central places you come. It is. And, and what is it about Houston that draws you here other than our library? Uh, other than the library and the uh, Tex-Mex food, uh, obviously. Right, right. Um, it's also, we have a, a particular connection with uh, St. John the Divine, which is a church in, in central Houston. Um, so we come over and inflict some of our teaching on them, and they bring people over to our summer school uh, that we have every other summer. And we've got one coming up this, this summer where N.T. Wright is going to be speaking. Uh, so, um, so we could bring students over to summer school at Wycliffe Hall. You could bring students or anybody any age over to summer school. Well, it's a week, a week in Oxford in August. Um, and, and Oxford in August is actually pretty nice compared to Houston in August. When I'm being even-handed, having been in Oxford and Cambridge, I say, and people ask me which, is, which do you prefer, I say Cambridge is nicer in the spring and uh, Oxford is nicer in the kind of August and the, f the fall. Yeah, it's not bad. So if people wanted information on that because they want to say, hey, I or somebody with me, may, that may be where I'd like to spend a week in August studying, um, how would they go about getting that information? Well, um, we have somebody, ah, Merid the Meredith here and uh, Stephanie. Um, would you like, would actually, could you stand up, up yeah, yeah, stand so up. people can see where you are? Uh, and they are, uh, they work for w Friends of Wycliffe Hall in the States, uh, and they all have details, both of the summer school um, and also of coming, the possibility of coming doing a year in Oxford. We have a thing called the Theologus program, which, where you do a certificate at the Oxford University, but we also have fireside chats with people like N.T. Wright and uh, Alistair McGrath and people like that, and we do quite a lot of stuff with, about C.S. Lewis, and, and so come and have a year uh, with us if you'd like to. Ah, fantastic. So people who might want to know that information, these two ladies right down behind uh, Coach and Bev and, and, and just right there, right? Yeah, that's Okay, them. good, that's them. good. Now, um, um, so tonight you're speaking at St. John the Divine? I am. And what are you going to speak on? I'm speaking on resilience. For it or As, as long it? as I can get through to that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so what, what will you be saying? Give us a thumbnail sketch. Um, I think... Uh, how to build, a, a, you know, is it, Christian life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And we need to make sure that we are keeping going uh, through to the end. My, my great inspiration here is Michael Green, who I think you may have met, who is a, a great evangelist in the States. Uh, right through to his late 80s, he was um, leading missions in Oslo and Macedonia and Albania and, and, and uh, all around the UK. Uh, and in his final illness, uh, he died sadly last year, but in his final illness, he, went, he was in hospital. Uh, and you know how they have these little kind of tray tables over the bed uh, that you put your glasses of water on and your jug of water and your get well cars and your bowl of grapes. He cleared all that off, put copies of his books and tracks up 
and a little sign that said, if I'm unconscious, just take one. <laughs> um, that, that's what we want. We want to train lifelong disciple makers who right through to the end will be doing that, be offering to the world that love from which they came and for which they were created. If I'm of which you were speaking this morning. Take one. <laughs> um, and, and I think you, it's, it's about all sorts of things. It's about resilience is about having realistic expectations, realizing how messed up human beings are and not being devastated when they do bad stuff. Realizing how br broken the world is um, and that it's not easily fixed or put right. It will be. That's part of the gospel. Uh, but in the meantime, it's, it's messed up and that's hard. And to be prepared for that. Uh, and to realize that uh, that which is good is always opposed. Uh, we've been talking earlier about, about Satan and co. Uh, and therefore, again, to be, to be prepared for that. I remember hearing um, a preacher once say... If, I believe that revival is just around the corner. And if I, if I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be able to keep going. And I thought, well, it's hard. We're not called to be successful. We're called to be faithful. And we need to be prepared to slog away with ministries and lives that just are faithful and leave the rest to God. And, and we need that. That's what's going to build resilience. It's just, I'm just going to do this because it's right and because I love God and because I want people to know that and to receive that and to have that. Amen. That'll be well received. Um, so in your personal life, as you apply these things, tell us a little bit about how at, at, at the young age of the early 60s, tell us um, how you how you live in ways that enrich your life with the Lord. What do you do for, for example, your personal prayer time? Talk to us about that. Okay. Um, so during term time, we have morning prayer and, and evening prayer in college as a, as a community. We pray together. Um, and then I take an hour after that just to read, read a bit of the Bible, pray, pray it through, read a commentary on it, um, and, and then pray. And that's the staple. That's the kind of regular, regular rhythm uh, of, of my prayer life. Um, when there's anything particular on my mind, I love to, to walk and pray. I love walking. Walking is kind of one of the things I do. Um, and I just make myself a cup of very ridiculously strong tea because that's how I like my tea. Um, and I go and walk. And I think and I pray and I uh, put myself in, in conscious awareness of God's presence and God's glory and God's beauty and God's love. Okay. Where, where do you worship? Where do you go to church? I go to the cathedral in, in Oxford. It's very close to where I live. Uh, and um, I like it. It's uh, the professors, some of the professors of the, of the university are canons of the cathedral. You have to be, for some of these positions, you have to be an ordained member of the Church of England in order to have that to be professor. Um, and so they also preach in the cathedral. It means that the preaching tends to be thoughtful and intelligent, and um, so I, I, I'm, I'm happy there. Did I see you get up and walk out of my sermon this morning? No, I, I don't, didn't even <laughs> fall asleep doing it, which gives <laughs> Well, from my vantage point, that puts you in the stead of about half of the audience. Uh, no, uh, everybody's so no, gracious I, to me. I really enjoyed your sermon this morning. You're very kind. Um, so you go to church there. Now, I know you are a very musical person. I do love music. and um, I'm not a great performer of music. I'm a great listener to music. And you like classical music. I do like classical Springsteen, music. Springsteen, Dylan, U2, <laughs> all the classics. Oh, yes. <laughs> uh, and people like Handel, Elgar, Dvorak. Yeah, 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 those other guys. Uh, <laughs> so one of the interesting things that we did, uh, uh, Pastor David and I were in your office. You were. Uh, about four or five months ago, yep. six months ago, and we were talking about you coming to speak at the library, and yes. we were trying to decide on the topic. That's right. We thought either the origin of evil 
or handle, <laughs> as in the Messiah type stuff. And uh, we uh, went with the origin of evil. Yes, because Mark said that you needed help with evil in particular. <laughs> wasn't, that was the gist of it, wasn't it? I'm trying to be nice to our guests. <laughs> um, no, 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 that was, uh, uh, that was, that was true. So um, <laughs> tell us a little bit about your love for music and, and how your faith and music intertwine. Okay, so uh, when I was at um, school, uh, we had a director, rather inspire, inspirational director of music, and we had to do three classes every week in some non-curricular subject. So you could do metalworking or art or music, and most people did music because um, if it was the first lesson of the day, he would give us tea and coffee, uh, which two of them were, and if it was the last one before lunch, he'd give us sherry, which one of them was. Uh, so vast numbers of people uh, did this class, and we just listened to music. Um, and it's amazing how you would meet some of those people uh, years later at a concert somewhere or whatever. They, you just develop this huge love of music in people. Uh, so that's where it came from. And um, I have a particular interest in, in, in Handel's music. Um, I think because it speaks to me both musically and I think his Christian faith shines through uh, what, what he does. And I just got interested in his theology, which is crazy because I'm not a musicologist, I'm not a Handel scholar, and he didn't write any theology. Um, but I think you can work out what he believed by what he chose to set, uh, by what he chose not to set, and by how he set the things he did set. Give us an example. Uh, for those who may not know, his most famous work is probably the Messiah. It is. Let's start. With the Hallelujah Chorus yeah. and, and, and all of that. What you need to know is what was going on in, at the time of Handel. So this is the 18th century, uh, and in the UK, there was a huge, the biggest threat to the Christian faith uh, is a movement called Deism, uh, which was, it believed in God, but it didn't really believe in much else. It didn't believe God was terribly interested in us. Uh, you can work out that there's a creator from the order of creation, the order of the world and the design of the universe, which they learned a lot from uh, Isaac Newton about. Um, so you can work out there is a God. You can work out that there's a moral order, but that's kind of all you need. You don't need revelation. You don't need salvation history. You don't need uh, Jesus. You don't need revelation. You don't need the apostles. You don't need the scriptures. Don't need prayer. You don't. God just basically made it and then took a vacation. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and in particular, they didn't like prophecy. They didn't believe in prophecy. They attacked prophecy, the deists. Um, what does Handel do? He writes Messiah, which is all about prophecy. Uh, and there's actually a book by an Anglican bishop at the time who was an Orthodox believing uh, bishop. Um, defending the concept of prophecy against those deists who are attacking it. And he used 80 passages of Scripture, 50 of which are the ones used in Messiah, in the same order. Um, and we know that the librettist for Handel's Messiah had a copy of that book in his library. So what Handel has actually done is to set a book of apologetics to music. It's a book of Christian apologetics about prophecy. The other thing about uh, deism is it was completely ahistorical. The great textbook for deism was entitled Christianity as Old as Creation. You learn all you need to know from Christianity, about Christianity, about God from creation. You don't need all this historical stuff. What does Handel do? He writes historical oratorios about God's revelation in history. Joseph and his brethren, Saul, Samson, Judas Maccabeus, Susanna, uh, all those, you know, Esther, um, Solomon, uh, is a way of saying, no, history is the arena of God's self-revelation. He makes himself known in history. Uh, and I think, humanly speaking, the three people who rescued Orthodox Christianity in the 18th century in the UK uh, were um, a chap called... Um, at Bishop Butler, who wrote a book called The Analogy of Religion, which just outthought the, 
the dais. He was very measured, he was very gracious, he, he wasn't very polemical, but he just presented a bigger, richer vision of what it was to be human than the dais ever man managed. Secondly, Wesley. Uh, Wesley's preaching captured people's hearts and imaginations uh, for orthodox Christian faith. And thirdly, Handel, who, again, it's the, the life of the imagination. Uh, mm. Because what you can imagine shapes what you can believe. And I think our artists and our composers and our poets and our puppeteers <laughs> shape, help shape what a culture finds itself able to believe. So we're hoping to appoint an artist in residence at Wycliffe. You so know, as well as the thinkers and the preachers, we also have the life of the imagination. Have you listened to Kanye West's new album? Not significantly, no. Closed on Sunday, you're my Chick-fil-A, number one with a lemonade. As I say, great poetry is a wonderful thing. <laughs> All right. Um, would you join me in thanking Michael for being with us today? It's a long drive from the memorial area, I believe, where Stephanie and others had him. And they got up early this morning. They missed their church to be here. And so thank you, ladies, very much. Thank you, Michael. Would you, um, uh, I'm going to have the class stand. And would you bless us uh, before we leave? I, I would love to do that. Thank you. <clears throat> Lord, thank you so much for the fact that wherever we go in the world, we find members of your family with whom we have a connection, with whom we can have fellowship. Thank you for this group of people. Thank you for their desire to go deeper and deeper into the scriptures and into you and to live faithful lives reflecting your beauty and your glory to a hungry and a hurting world. Amen. And we pray especially for... Uh, the things we've been discussing just now. We pray particularly uh, for those who are struggling, who are suffering, for whom the problem of evil is not an intellectual puzzle, but an intense personal struggle. And I pray that something that has been said may help a little bit to know that you are uh, always against their suffering and for them. Uh, and we pray, we thank you for the hope that you are going to put this world right. And in the meantime, we offer you ourselves as agents of that putting right, mm -hmm. as agents of your healing, agents of your reconciliation, and agents of your love. So we commit ourselves to being that, praying that you will make us more like you, make, you will clean up the glass windows of who we are so that you may shine through them. Mm. Uh, and may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be amongst us, be within us uh, this day and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Thank you very much.